My name is Matthew, one of the pastors here. It's a joy to sit underneath the Word of Christ, to worship under the Word of Christ with you this morning. Please stay in your Bibles there in Mark chapter 6, 14 through 29. That's where we will be this morning. If you have ever attempted to garden, to do anything in your yard, you know that it does not happen easily. There is much opposition. Great opposition. There is a force of nature, no pun intended, that is against you cultivating that wild environment. You step in to do something good to cultivate, and there is a force that is unleashed against you. And I have had my fair share of encountering about every nemesis that you can think of. Right? There's all kinds of things that you run into. There's weeds, there's voles, there's other rodents, there's deers, there's mold, there's overwatering, underwatering, too much sun, too little sun. The variables abound. There's one force that opposes you in doing something well in that wild environment. We should not be surprised. You should not be surprised when you step out into your garden to cultivate fruit. And this morning in our text, Mark is showing us in a similar way, when we step out to advance the mission of Jesus, we should not be surprised when we are met with opposition. The kingdom of God is breaking through the King, Jesus We've been looking at that through Mark. Jesus has been raising the dead, calming storms, healing the sick, casting out demons. He's God in the flesh. The kingdom of God is here. But we've been seeing that Mark is showing us that, that kingdom does not come in easily. There is great opposition. Mighty opposition Satan is resolutely against us taking ground for Jesus. He's resolutely against that happening. Every fiber in his spiritual body does not want that to happen. Does not want the mission of Jesus to advance. And in our text today, showcases that reality. In the gruesome, violent death of John the Baptist, faithful prophet of God, forerunner of the Messiah, violently killed, opposed. Opposition comes in many forms. 
You could break it down into internal opposition of sin, our flesh inside of us, right? We, we want to do good, as Paul says, and when I want to do good, I find this law at work, that evil is close at hand. So I want to honor Jesus, and when I do that, there's, there's forces that are unleashed inside of our hearts that say, no, the flesh is set against the Spirit to try to keep the Spirit from doing what it wants to do. Internal opposition from the flesh and sin. But there's also external opposition out in the world. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Real opposition, real sin and evil out in the world, driven by the devil himself, who's behind it all. And this story of John the Baptist's death, it's happening in a very specific context in Mark's gospel. Mark is sandwiching it here. It's almost like an interruption to the story, to the narrative. It kind of comes out of nowhere. It's the only story in Mark's gospel that doesn't squarely talk about Jesus. It's in fact sandwiched between two things. Between the sending out of the 12 disciples by Jesus that we saw last week and when his disciples return. So why, Mark, why put this gruesome story right here? Well, he's making a point. He's not just trying to remember everything about the gospel narrative. It's true, it's history, but that's not merely his only intention. There's a point here that God is writing in his word to us. And that point is this. When we advance the mission of Jesus, we should expect opposition from the devil. That's what I think is the point of this text. That is the point of this sermon. It's one point. There's no subheadings. We're going to be walking through this gruesome story. We're not going to lose sight of this main thing. We are called to advance the mission of Jesus, and we should not be surprised when we encounter opposition from the devil. Let's pray for the Lord's help as we dive in. Father, we ask for help now. God, would you grant us ears to hear your truth? Would your Holy Spirit open up our hearts to see truth? To acknowledge truth. To apply truth. To celebrate truth. To to celebrate Jesus. To behold Jesus in all of His glory. and all of His worth. God, would you take this text that you have sovereignly placed in in your Bible, in your Holy Word, and that is sovereignly here this morning. Would you do with it as you please with our hearts and with our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Verses 14 through 16. King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, no, he is Elijah. And others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, 
has been raised. This is not Herod the Great that was there at Jesus' birth. This is his son, Herod Antipas. And this Herod, it's really, he, he's now a tetrarch. He's ruler of Galilee, one quarter of his father's kingdom. And the name of Jesus has reached his ears. Praise God. The ministry of Jesus, the disciples, has caused enough stir that the name of this man has reached this ruler's ears. Praise God for that. How is he going to respond? And there's a few explanations. People are throwing out, well, maybe he's Elijah. That is the, the forerunner of the Messiah that a lot of people at that time were looking for. It was it was popular. It was a popular Jewish idea to be looking for this forerunner. Or is he a prophet? He's just like another prophet that have always been from God. There has been 400 years of silence outside of John the Baptist. Maybe he's just another prophet. Or is he John the Baptist raised from the dead? And what's interesting is for Herod, there's no question in his mind. This is John. This is certainly John coming back from the dead because I beheaded him. Herod's in a panic, a full-blown panic right here because when somebody comes back from the dead and you know that you killed this person, you would be in a panic as he's here to judge you. Herod has this idea of right and wrong. God has worked into all of humanity, made in the image of God, a conscience. That is, deep down inside of us, we generally know right from wrong. It's not always perfect because we are fallen. But generally, we have a conscience. Romans 1 makes clear, though, that if we constantly ignore that conscience, it can be seared and, and we lose the discerning ability of the Holy Spirit that would be working on our hearts in that way. And so I think that's what's happening here with Herod. He's, he's got a conscience. He's not a believer. He doesn't want to submit to anything. We already know that he's killed John the Baptist. But there's a wrestle and he's done something wrong that he knows is wrong. And so he believes that John the Baptist is back and his judgment is coming. He knows he killed an innocent man. And I, li I like how Dr. Aiken commented on this piece of text here. He says, and if you're thinking about John the Baptist and what we can learn here, he says, let your good works honor you and let your good works haunt them. Are we living in such a way before an unbelieving world, an unbelieving generation, that we would actually be honored in some ways? Right? They're, they're not going to like us. They're going to hate us as we're going to see. But there's also this sense where many people would, would, they might not agree with us, but they would still respect us for the godliness, for the holiness that we would walk in, and then let our good works haunt them. And they can't deny, they could deny our God, but they could not deny the evidence of the fruit in our lives. And that's almost like what's going on with Herod. John, in his testimony, is haunting Herod. 
And then we get the full twisted backstory. Verse 17, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Herod's niece is Herodias. This is a twisted family tree. I don't expect you to follow it. It puts any TV show to shame. Herod's niece is Herodias. Herodias marries Philip, his brother, which makes Herodias Herod's niece and sister-in-law. And to make things more twisted, there's this big Herod family get-together with the other tetrarchs, and they're enjoying one another. And then at this party, at this get-together, Herodias and Herod fall in love. They become attracted to one another, and they set in motion a plan. Hey, we got a great idea. Why don't you divorce your spouse? I'll divorce my spouse. We can come together and be married. This is what we need to do. And that's exactly what they do. So Herod has, yes, just married his niece and his sister-in-law. This was a marriage that was clearly forbidden by the word of God. Leviticus 20, 21, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. It doesn't take revelation of God and Holy Scripture for us to know that that's the wrong thing to do. Even un the unbelieving world knows that that is wrong. This is perverted. John, through his popularity, he had become popular. He had counted the loss. He considered this world a loss. He was out in the desert, right, proclaiming this message of repentance. He was a popular prophet, and by doing that, he gets invited into earshot of Herod. Herod liked him. It's kind of like today. You might have a, a spiritual advisor to a ruler, and they don't, they don't fully agree with Christianity, but they like spiritual advisors. I'll listen. I'll listen to some spiritual advice. And so that's kind of what's going on here. John has that sort of relationship with Herod, the highest local ruler. What is John going to do? He knows all this has happened with Herod. He knows what the Word of God says. What would you do in that moment? Would you say something that would tickle Herod's ears? Right? Don't want to frustrate the relationship? Don't want to bring on truth too strong? Figure out a, another way to go about it? Or would you stand up for God's word? And that's exactly what John does. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John calls him out. He calls him out, not on the basis of emotion, not on the basis of personal agenda, or some other remote cause, he, he, basically, he calls him out squarely on the word of God. Herod, what you're doing is not lawful. God doesn't approve of it. And the construction of this verb here, 
means that he kept on saying. It's ongoing. <laughs> means many conversations. John kept pounding him with the truth. Herod, it's not lawful. Herod, it's not lawful. Herod, it's not lawful. He keeps on speaking the truth and standing up for the truth to Herod. It was a message of repentance. John was called to prepare the way for the king. And he preached a message of repentance. Jesus comes on the scene. And he preaches a message of repentance. Jesus then sends out the twelve we saw last week. And what do the disciples do? They preach a message of repentance. That is, hey, world... You're running in the wrong direction. You're following the wrong king. Turn around. You're heading to a cliff. The wrath of God stands over you. Turn and worship Jesus. Receive salvation. That's the same call that God has given us today as the church. We are to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to call all men to repentance to this great king. And you know as well as I do. That nobody likes to be told to repent. We don't like to be told to repent. There's all kinds of opposition inside of our hearts that says, no, I don't want to repent. I don't want to turn around. I like my sin. I like my sin too much. And more than Jesus. And so we grab and we refuse to turn. So the world does not like a message of repentance at all. But that's the message that we are called to speak. Are you willing to stand up for the truth? Are you willing to tell somebody that they're in error? I'm not saying be a, you don't be a jerk. We're not supposed to be jerks. We're supposed to be proclaiming the gospel, the true word of God. And we're promoting it with our lives. We're, we're adorning the gospel with how we live. It is the way that we live in our godliness, in our holiness, in our love, in our humility, in our self-sacrifice for the world. That's the way we live to adorn the gospel message that we are proclaiming. We're not coming in arrogance. That's in contradiction to the gospel. We come as servants. We come, we come underneath the world trying to stoop down and wash the world's feet. That's our posture before the world. It's God who brings the judgment, not us. But we must be faithful to stand up for the word of God when it is being challenged. People don't like it, though. We should not be surprised when they get their feathers ruffled. We see this with Herodias. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. 
When he had heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So the light is shining into the dark, but the darkness hates the light. It refuses the light, will not come to it. That's what's happening with Herodias. She's got this grudge, begins with a grudge, and then it begins festering. And she can't stand this man, John. It has less to do with John. It has more to do with the message, right? I hate the message, so I'm going to hate the messenger. And it's been said that the only way or the only place where her marriage certificate could be celebrated was on the back of a death warrant for John the Baptist. That bitterness, John was bothering her. And you know what she was bothered by? She couldn't celebrate her marriage. So what am I going to do? Let's try to remove the word. Let's remove it. Let's kill him. And maybe then I can sleep well at night. Because I want my sin, and I want to celebrate and enjoy my sin. So let's remove the Word of God that would tell me I can't enjoy my sin. And is this not what is happening in our world today? The church has always supposed to have been the conscience of the culture. But that only works when the culture affirms what the church is proclaiming. So what happens when the culture begins to drift and the church begins to proclaim something other than what the culture affirms? Well, they begin to tolerate it. And then they begin to marginalize it. And then they seek to remove it. That's not to scare us, but it's to paint an authentic picture of reality. I don't know what's going to happen in America, but this is the pattern throughout history. Who do we think we are to live in a Christian bubble where everybody around us, unbelievers, would affirm? They don't agree, but they might affirm us. That's not a right. And when the devil gets working, he wants to remove us. And we got to be prepared. There is a war going on. This is opposition. Some readily receive the gospel. Praise God. We go in the strength and the power and the hope of God's redeeming work that he's already got people out there that don't know it. But he's already called them. And he's sending us out and we can go in that confidence of his sovereign lordship that there are people out there who will readily listen to you when you open your mouth. When you open your mouth about the name of Jesus, they will say, yes, give me more of him. They're out there. And we're going for them and we're going for the glory of God. And there's others out there who will tolerate it and they just want to listen. And like Herod, he's, he's kind of in between 
He kind of likes listening to John, although he doesn't like John all that much. We see that he, he visits John in prison, it, it would indicate. Still's going down. He's, he had stopped John from getting killed, but he goes down, he sneaks down there and listens to what John has to say. And then there are those like Herodias that outright reject the Word of God and Christians and Christianity. All this driven by the devil. People are sinful. People will have to pay. They are judged for their sin. There's no excuse, but Satan is behind all this, and he waits for an opportune moment. We see that in verse 21. An opportunity comes when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in and immediately with haste to the king and asked saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on the platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break, in, break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. This is a who's who party. Everyone is here. It's a big banquet, birthday party for Herod. Fact check from a couple weeks ago, the Jews did not celebrate birthdays. Sorry about that. They considered it a pagan, a pagan practice. So this has already got this tone of sickness all around it. It's a, it's a sick, perverted party. Only men were allowed in these types of parties. No, no women were allowed. And you can bet that they were not on their best behavior. Plenty of alcohol to go around. And it's not completely out of the question that Herodias' daughter goes in on her own because it is just such a sick culture. But very likely, most commentators that I read would agree that Herodias is behind all this. She sees the opportunity and she sends her own daughter into this mess of a party. Into this drunken, wicked party. She sends her daughter in. Go, honey. Go dance. And it was not a, an appropriate dance. The goal to appeal to their sick, perverted, sinful appetites to win them over. She was prostituting her daughter for this. Sin will make you do very irrational things. You go to great extent in your sin to try to remove the word of God from your midst. She goes in and the, the bait works. Herod is enticed and takes it. And it's a figure of speech. I'll give you half of my kingdom. Meaning, I'm in a very generous mood right now. You have won us over. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. She goes back, mom, the plan is working. Okay, honey, go back in and ask for the head of John the Baptist. Herod 
It's too cowardly at that point. He knows what's happening. He knows what's right. He knows what's wrong. It says, for fear of the crowds, for fear of his reputation. He was holding on to something more in that moment than his integrity, than living life before God. And he gives in. He says, go. Gives the order. The executioners go. And within minutes, they are back with John's head. And just like that, the prophet, the last of the prophets before the Messiah's life comes to an end. The head comes in on a sick, gross platter given to Herodias. Opposition. Opposition to the Word of God and to the mission of God. This is a graphic picture of the extent that sin and evil in our world will go to oppose God. Verse 29, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and they laid it in a tomb. Can you imagine that? Put your feet in the shoes of sandals, those disciples. We want to give John some sense of honor. We want to give him a burial. That will be our last wish for him. And they let you in. And you go into that dark, cold prison cell. And you see his headless body lying there. Come on, guys. Let's, let's pick up the body. Carry it out of the palace. Or wherever they are. And they lay his body in a tomb. Opposition. What's going on in your mind at that moment? Like, hold up. This is John the Baptist. Like maybe from our perspective, I don't know how much they knew at this moment. But John's the man. He's holy. He's righteous. The Holy Spirit comes upon him when he's in the womb. The forerunner of the Messiah. He, he's the one in the waters when he sees Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he baptizes Jesus. This is John chosen. Chosen by God. And, and this is what happens to him. Like, really, God? This is what, this is what the righteous get. Opposition. And this opposition, it's nothing new. It's nothing new then. It's nothing new now. This opposition has been going on since the beginning of time. When that wicked serpent slithered his way into the garden and deceived Adam and Eve and cast doubt upon God's word, opposed God's word, and deceived them. 
And sin and the fall is unleashed, the curse unleashed on mankind. Opposition has been going on since then. But there is a most precious promise given in Genesis 3, chapter 15, where God is speaking to the serpent. And he says, okay, there will be a war between you and this offspring, but offspring, singular, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. A prophesy, prophecy that one day this opposition would end. That's what John was giving his life to testify to. Maybe this same year, maybe a couple years later, we don't exactly know. Exact thing, same thing happens with Jesus. He's the prophesied one. He is the snake crusher. He, just like John the Baptist, would suffer. Jesus, not, not just the one who would speak the word of God, but the word of God, incarnate, himself. John still had sin. He was testifying to the sinless one. Jesus is the sinless one, the innocent one, the righteous one. Who testified and lived out the word of truth. And where did it lead him? To a cross. To a cross. Tried as a criminal. And the disciples, they get his body and they lay his body in a tomb. And I can imagine a similar conversation. What happened, God? Jesus was our hope. Evil has triumphed. Look, look what happened to the Son of God. Evil won. Let's all go home and shut this thing down. Or has it? Or has evil won? Because three days later, Jesus' heart starts beating. And air fills his lungs. And he gets up and walks out of the grave. Victorious. Death could not hold him. And in the death of Christ is death itself and the, the declaration, the proclamation that, Jesus, uh, that Satan and all of his devices has been completely disqualified. The verdict rendered powerless. Satan's defeat is then sure. One at the cross. That accuser cannot accuse the church any longer. Because there our righteousness is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of anyone who would believe. And I can imagine as Herod trembled at the thought that John the Baptist was raised from the dead, I can imagine that Satan trembles at the reality of the risen Christ. That opposition climaxed at the cross. Satan threw everything he could at God in that moment. And Jesus won.
and he trembles because his death is sure. We as the church walk in victory. But he's not completely dead yet. That's going to happen. Revelation tells us that one day Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire and he will burn forever and ever and ever. No more to make opposition on God or God's people. Never again will he come against us. The people of God, safe in resurrected glory with our resurrected Lord. In the new heavens and the new earth that God has prepared for all those that believe and put their trust and hope in him. That is our confidence, church. And that is our comfort. May we go on speaking the word of God. May we go on declaring the truth of Jesus Christ. Right? As Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation for anyone who would believe. How can we be ashamed of this gospel? It is life. It is joy forever and ever and ever. Yes, we may be killed in this life. But yes, we get Jesus forever. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Church, let's not be shocked when the devil throws at us those fiery darts of opposition. May we move forward confident in our resurrected reigning King Jesus who will receive us on the other side in the fullness of glory. Paul writes in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake, O oh God, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Will you follow Jesus this morning? Will you follow him no matter what it costs you? The reward is infinitely worth it. He's not leading us into palaces of comfort wearing crowns. He's leading us on the road of Calvary, on a life that would give itself to honor God, to love others, and to esteem His word and to carry salvation to the ends of the earth. The road of Calvary.
Will you surrender to Jesus this morning? If you've never done that before, if you were on the other side, if, if Jesus stands as a threatening force to you in person to you, today receive him as your Lord and Savior. And church, may we go on and advance the mission. May we advance the mission expecting opposition. Not for opposition's sake, not for suffering's sake, but for Jesus' glory's sake. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, God, that challenges us, that prepares us, that readies us, that convicts and compels us. God, we ask forgiveness for ways that we have silenced speaking your word. God, when you have prompted our hearts to speak a word of truth, a word of grace, and we've, we've shied back. God, we ask you to forgive us. We readily receive your forgiveness today, God, and we ask for empowerment, empowerment by your Holy Spirit to be faithful, to be faithful, to count the cost, to, to seek your reward above and beyond anything that this world could offer us. God, we, we go now in your strength, to carry your name and your glory to the ends of the earth. You are a good and gracious God, and we praise you. In your name we pray, amen.